Welcome to the Nemeth Report Podcast. I'm Dr. Tammy Nemeth, historian and independent researcher, and I'll be your host. In June 2020, three months after the global lockdown for COVID-19 began, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum and various corporate and political stakeholders, including Canada's Justin Trudeau, took advantage of the unprecedented events to launch the Great Reset Initiative. Schwab declared, and I quote, Every country from the United States to China must participate, and every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. One silver lining of the pandemic is that it has shown how quickly we can make radical changes to our lifestyles. End quote. A month later, Klaus Schwab and Thierry Malloray published a book called COVID-19, The Great Reset, detailing the plans. The World Economic Forum and its Great Reset Initiative is comprehensive, thorough, and well-organized. The transformation outlined by the Great Reset includes the following. Governments, with their corporate facilitators, will direct markets. Wealth taxes will facilitate equality of outcome. Recovery stimulus packages will be green. Investments will be directed for equality and sustainability. And the digital transformation of society in line with the fourth industrial revolution will be accelerated. Included in this reset is a commitment to a net zero energy transition and environmental social governance metrics or ESG. This great reset is being adopted in Canada, the EU, and is embraced now by the Biden administration. Time magazine ran an issue in November 2020 detailing the great reset, not as a conspiracy theory, but as a reasonable plan for the future. In January of this year, 2022, Schwab published The Great Reset Book 2, called The Great Narrative, in which he and co-author Thierry Malloray interviewed many global thinkers in order to develop narratives that will seek to imagine and even design a new future world. A key element of that narrative is to have citizens of the West, particularly the youth, lower their expectations of prosperity to meet global climate targets and restructure the global system. These changes are not benign, nor are they altruistic. They serve to undermine and destroy our modern way of life and the hydrocarbons at its heart. It is not just rule changes to how we do business, it's a complete system change. Our current system may not be perfect, but it has improved the care of our environment and planet and people unlike any others. This is a system worth restoring and fighting for. Joining me today to discuss the Great Reset is Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. Michael is the Chief Academic Officer and Co-Founder of American Scholars, a pro-American education platform. He was a Professor of Liberal Studies and Global Liberal Studies at NYU from 2008 to 2019. He holds a PhD in Literary and Cultural Studies from Carnegie Mellon University and is the author of 11 books such as Beyond Woke, Google Archipelago, The Digital Gulag and the Simulation of Freedom, and his most recent, Thought Criminal. Michael has been writing about the Great Reset on his blog since the summer of 2020 and more recently participated in the Hillsdale College What is the Great Reset Conference in November 2021. Thank you for joining me today, Michael, and welcome to the program. Hi, Tammy. Thanks for having me. So I guess to start, um, as, as you said in the beginning of your, um, of your presentation at the Great Reset Conference and that you've discussed a little bit is that quite often people say, well, the, the Great Reset is just some left-wing conspiracy theory or right-wing conspiracy theory about some left-wing groups that want to take over the world or something. 
I would posit that like the devil's greatest accomplishment is in convincing the world he doesn't exist. So Klaus Schwab uses big media to convince the world the Great Reset doesn't exist, while at the same time using big media to push the Great Reset agenda. How would you respond to that? And what exactly, in your view, is the Great Reset? Is it a conspiracy? Well, isn't that the greatest gaslighting uh, campaign imaginable to have uh, Schwab promoting and the WEF promoting the Great Reset on its website and in conferences and so forth on a daily basis, uh, constantly uh, harping on the need for this Great Reset, and yet at the same time trying to convince people that there is no such thing or, or that the Great Reset idea is a conspiracy theory. Well, it's not a conspiracy theory. Uh, it might be considered a conspiracy fact. <laughs> and that is it's it's a conspiracy but it's not it's an it's not really a conspiracy because it's open it's an open and avowed plan uh to reset the global economy uh using the stakeholder capitalism and idea uh with the ESG environmental social and governance index as the mechanism to to largely affect it and i would describe it as a reset of uh, capitalism in the sense that it is intervening in the capitalist system in order to uh, to uh, control production uh, and to limit investments, if not totally shut them off, to non-ESG compliant corporations uh, such that it drives uh, production to these approved woke corporate entities and away from the others. Uh, so I, and then at the same time, the ESG score represents the politicization of, of the economy. Uh, and it, ins, it institutes um, basically policy changes that would normally be undertaken at the governmental level. So it's a very undemocratic way of charging taxes in effect taxing us very heavily for uh, taxing not only shareholders, but also customers who will pay higher prices and workers who will probably get stagnant to lower wages. So the Great Reset really affects this. And you mentioned this before, it, it, it affects the expectations and the prospects of the, of the vast majority in the first world, if you will. Uh, in the United States, the idea is to lower our standard of living uh, and to limit our intake of certain resources, including oil and gas, of course, but also meat, yeah. uh, meat consumption, and many other things that are deemed inimical or dangerous, uh, damaging to the environment by these great reset overlords. And it's a centralized planning of the economy by these overlords who have no real, uh, no, they don't represent us. They never, they were never elected. They were never, these pe these policies were never agreed upon by any electorate anywhere. Yet it's being undertaken through these corporations and they're affecting governments. And, uh, you know, I recently read a blog that said basically the idea of changing uh, these corporate behavior is eventually to push this into policy and to push it into governmental uh, regulations and so forth. So the governments, and we will be picking this up, and in fact, we saw that with Biden uh, with the recent uh, executive order 
which I mentioned in that uh, essay uh, on the Great Reset in my uh, on my website, that uh, this I think it's fourteen thousand thirty is the executive order which institutes all these ESG uh, precepts into uh, banking in particular. So banks banks can't uh, invest in companies uh, that are not ESG compliant. Uh, so this is being picked up by governments. And of course, the United Nations is hugely behind it. Uh, and, you know, uh, you know, BlackRock Inc. may be the most visible asset manager that's involved, but uh, by my count, there are 4,700 uh, asset managers, banks, and uh, service providers that are involved, that are instituting and reporting on ESG and abiding, abiding by ESG uh, precepts. Right. Um, one of the things I've found in my research is that they'll have all of these ESG metrics that corporations and whatnot are, <clears throat> excuse me, supposed to follow and fill out what, you know, these metrics for their boards or, you know, in order to get financing or whatever. But then what happens is you have environmental groups or these supposedly neutral third parties who develop a scorecard. And right. then they look through everything, they create this scorecard, and then investors are supposed to utilize that scorecard in order to decide whether or not they wish to invest in these companies. And of course, it's actually those people who make the scorecards that are important because investors don't have the time to be going through all of these different um outlines of what they're, the ESG metrics these companies are declaring. Instead, they're going to rely upon these um, <clears throat> third-party scorecards in order to make their decisions. And quite often, I've seen that some of these scorecard groups are affiliated with the World Economic Forum or are backed by the large philanthropic foundations in the United States and mm -hmm. who are pushing this sort of environmental restructuring of our society. And what I really liked about how you wrote about the Great Reset is that it's, it pulls together all of these different elements, like the whole woke movement and the environment yeah. and the financial restructuring. And that's really important because quite often people hear Great Reset and they think, oh, well, that's just about one little thing. But the reality is that it's actually all encompassing. It, its fingers are in everything. Everything. And, you know, one way to understand it is that, you know, they, there's this phrase that's been bandied about since uh, Roth Dutot of the New York Times uh, coined it, and that is, uh, it's called, it's, it's uh, woke capitalism. Well, the Great Reset is instituting woke capitalism. This, it, this woke capitalism is not just about a PR campaigns by corporations to, you know, to uh, vaunt their uh, environmental friendly uh, and uh, socially friendly, social uh, justice friendly uh, policies and beliefs. Uh, this is about the affecting the actual hard economy through the stock market and through regulations and so forth. So woke capitalism is deeply penetrating the whole economic structure. And uh, it is not simply advertisements like GM's ad last night on the Super Bowl, which was really quite telling because in my mind, Really, who was being uh, portrayed there as by Doctor Evil was really Klaus Schwab, 
because <laughs> they even have the the temerity to say through through Doctor Evil, I will help save the world first, then take over the world. Isn't that curious? I mean, I couldn't believe about that. That I I couldn't believe my ears and eyes when I saw this ad because, ironically, they're basically indicating that's what this is about. Well, we will help first save the world, then take over the world. This is kind of Klaus Schwab's modus operandi, if if you will. So I found that to be quite ironic, and I'll be writing about that today. I didn't see that one. I saw the Ford one, and there were so many electric vehicle commercials on the Super Bowl this year for right. uh, backing up your house. It's like, okay, so there's a power outage. You're, you use your truck to power your house, and then what's going to power your truck when it's dead? You know, right. to get to get out. But and then BMW had a terrible one with um, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, pretending to be Zeus and how the BMW EV car is so great. And it, that's yeah. interesting, too, is this whole push towards electric vehicles. Now, in Canada, they've put forward an, um, the statement that by 2030, they will be banning the internal combustion engine. And wow. and that got almost zero coverage during the recent election in September. And it's like what you said, people, they don't really understand what this all means. And it's, so on the one hand, they gaslight and say, well, it's not what you think it is. And then right. on the other hand, they have this other stuff where actually, no, it is. It's exactly what you think it is. I, what, you, what I really, you, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Now, if you go on the World Economic Forum site, you'll see that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of corporations who are backing the stakeholder capitalism and uh, ESG indexing uh, of companies and that are abiding by it. And then uh, they have, uh, the UN has thousands of companies involved. So, you know, this is not, so people will go, great reset, what is it? And they won't recognize the elements of it when they see it. That's how they're doing this is by not, well, Schwab is, uh, Schwab is uh, promoting it as a package. We're getting uh, on the other end, these little, these rather uh, seemingly unrelated policies and changes that are coming down, but they're all part of what the Great Reset is about. Absolutely. And that's a really good point to make is they seem to be unrelated. But if you if you step back and look at the bigger picture, you can then see how they fit into this grander scheme of things about facilitating the, the great reset and the restructuring. What I find interesting is how Kristalina Georgieva is often involved in these, like she was there at the launch of the Great Reset, as she's often quoted in his books when they were talking about the great narrative. She was involved in that as well. And she's been on the record for at least two years now saying we need a new Bretton Woods. We need a new post, you know, financial arrangement for the world. And, right. you know, if you see this sort of shift to digital currency, um, I noticed there was the the fellow who was also at the, the Great Reset Conference at Hillsdale, where he talked about that technology makes it makes fascism easier and that having yeah. a cashless society, James Rickards, having a cashless society gives the government way more info about an individual on a real-time basis, which can then Absolutely. be used to modify your behavior, punish you, reward you, just like the Chinese social credit system. So Absolutely. do you see this ESG movement as 
being sort of the Western first step towards a social credit system? Yes, it's it's uh, basically a Chinese style social credit scoring system right now for corporations. But what they're floating also is a, an ESG score for individuals so yeah. that you you will be that means you'll be evaluated not only on your environmental uh, footprint, so to speak, your carbon footprint, but also your social justice score. How well do you cooperate with the social justice agenda? Uh, say you're a owner of a small business. Say you have five employees. Well, if two out of three out of five or three out of five aren't minorities of some sort, you may be penalized in your ESG score. This is all very, very much on the table. They're already floating the personal ESG score. And of course, the carbon allowance is part of that, Carb what, what your carbon allowance will be. Uh, apparently, the idea here is to not charge, uh, we're going to be paying for energy allotments. So basically, everything is going to be uh, calculated in terms of its energy output. So you'll have so many energy points that you're allowed per week, for example, yeah. or per month. This is very scary. We're talking about total control. Plus, certain vendors may not be able to accept digital currency, so they'll they'll be able to cut them out of the real economy. Uh, and um, this would leave a black economy for some vendors, or just nothing. Uh, so this is another way. And this is another way to control production and to drive it all towards these approved vendors, these approved producers, and away from the others who will starve from, cap starve from capital, starve out of capital. I mean, Fink and uh, Vanguard say it straight up. If you're not on board with this, you're not going to get investments. Yeah. And this is a warning, but it's a threat, really. Uh, and if you're not down with the, if you don't have a, a, a net zero plan, you may not get any cash influx. And this includes from banks. Uh, and uh, most of the world's banks, I think 44% of the world's banks and the largest ones in particular are on board, uh, starting from Bank of America all the way down. They're all on board. I can, I mean, there, I have the whole list in front of me right here and you wouldn't believe it. It's the who's who of banking, investing and, uh, and uh, asset management. Well, when I was looking at the NGFS meetings, uh, and these, these took place, I think it was in 2019, and they were talking about how to bring the banks on board because, of course, the banks were reluctant. They didn't want to be forced to have to make these kinds of decisions with, with their, their lendees and so on. And what they, they said was, it's really important to keep repeating the message that they're going to be left out of the group if they don't comply, if they don't join the join the the movement. And then the, what the other guy said is by talking about it all the time, the press picks up the story. And in the case of Australia, there was a bank that was um, that was sued for not taking into account climate risk and so so on and so forth. And it was the the board members of the bank who were held responsible. And yeah. so they used this threat of litigation and activism, you know, when the environmental groups chain themselves to gates and so on, as the sort of stick to get the banks on board with this. 
And Mark Carney came out, I don't know how many times, and said, look, if you don't join the bandwagon, there will be consequences. And his other big thing is to say that what gets measured gets managed. And I thought that was very, because he was talking about how they want to measure everybody's activities, which is which is what you said about the carbon allowance. And we're seeing some of that happen actually in the United Kingdom. I don't know if you saw um, with their energy crisis, the UK government and the energy providers have asked 1.4 million residents to voluntarily restrict their energy use, which will be monitored by their smart meters for at least two hours and every day in order to prevent the grid from collapsing. But mm. what it really is, is a sort of wedge to get people used to the idea that they will have to ration before yes. they rule it out to everybody. Absolutely. That's that's really what this is about. There'll be rationing uh, of energy consumption altogether. And that means when you eat meat, there's they're going to be calculating what the energy input is into that meat. And so this will be a way of limiting our uh, diets. Of course, now they're already promoting eating insects for the protein. So basically, <laughs> there's this idea that we're going to be having to eat bugs uh, in order to survive. And uh, they seem you know, perfectly happy with this idea or else uh, the kind of uh, synthetic meat that, you know, that Bill Gates uh, yeah. uh, uh, advocates or he's uh, actually produced uh, or is in the process of producing. So, yeah, all these things are on the table. And um, as far as the banks go, I mean, there are, I mean, I mean, so many banks are already on, on this uh, that it's unbelievable. And it, it's not just the bank's behavior that gets regulated here. The banks have to account for their investments in all these other companies. So if right. they loan money to somebody, that, that has to be justified in terms of the ESG. Right. And it's not just companies, I think. I mean, right now, of course, the first thing was big corporations, then smaller companies. And I know when they were discussing this issue a few years ago, um, they included some of the smaller banks, like so Van City out of Vancouver in, in Canada, and they were talking about, oh, well, this is great because we'll have to um, bring this in for every individual loan that a bank yeah. oversees. So if you want a car loan, there's no guarantee you'll get it if you're not buying an EV. Or, you know, they'll look at, oh, you have an S you're want you want to buy an SUV? Ooh, well, you have to have a higher interest rate if they even let you have the money. And then for your mortgage, they want to look at what the energy rating is of your house. And you'll get a mortgage or maybe it'll have a higher interest rate or you won't get one. So exactly, they were already talking about this two or three years ago um, right. of how they can rule this in for altering individual lifestyles and behaviors. And I should say this, that the, the, the environmental groups and uh, the uh, leftists in general are never satisfied with what's happening. So while we while we people will be definitely feeling the pain uh, of these policies and these implementations, uh, there's going to be pushes from from the environmental uh, advocates and others to increase this. That it will never be considered sufficient uh, because th there's always more that can be done. And of course, climate the climate supposed catastrophe is the pretext generally for this.
Right, for sure. The, the, the climate emergency that every city jumps on the bandwagon to declare. Um, right. And we've seen that in Canada. So the environmental groups here wanted various restrictions and limitations on oil sands development. And when the industry complied, then they said, okay, that's great. Let's move the goalposts. You need to do this now. And then when they would meet that, they would move the goalposts again. And like you said, it's never ending. They're never satisfied. So like with carbon capture, if companies can can figure out how to recycle the the carbon that they, carbon emissions or whatever, um, and could be net zero, would the environmental group stop bugging them? No, <laughs> not at all. There would always, fact, there would always be harder. something else. They'll push harder. Exactly. So why do you think so many businesses and politicians and banks are embracing the Great Reset and the ESG scores, not just in America, but in almost every Western country? Well, my theory about that is that for the large corporations, uh, this actually plays into their hands pretty well because the ESG puts such demands on companies and starves certain uh, players out of the market by virtue of the fact that they can't meet these ESG scores. They can't make it into the index or they can't report well on the index. It gets rid of them. And there's evidence uh, to suggest, there's research to suggest that the ESG favors the large corporation over the small, because when the when the uh, regulations are so high, the cost of entry into a business is enormous. This always favors large uh, established players. So in my mind, and I recently wrote about this uh, in a Mises Institute article that was published Friday, I think it was, that it's a monopoly game. This This is actually a means by which these large corporations can establish and maintain monopolies over these various industries. They're, they're monopoly-minded corporations. And so it actually serves their interests, uh, believe it or not, because they, don't, they can handle the tax that this really represents. This is actually a tax on them. They can handle that uh, percentage tax because of their size, but it's not so for the smaller company or, or the non-complying company. Uh, so that's my theory. It's a kind of uh, what I call corporate socialism, and that is monopolies on top and a kind of actually existing socialism for the rest. Uh, and th this, this accords well with the Great Reset idea that basically by 2030, which was now scrubbed from the website, by 2030, you'll own nothing, and this is you, the masses, and you'll be happy. Um, yeah. so there, there is no question about that. The idea that this is aimed at kind of eroding away what we might call the middle class, uh, and eliminating that middle class and drawing down their standards of living to le level it with that of most of the third world while bringing up the third world, maybe slightly, if at all. Uh, because this actually hurts uh, many countries uh, in particular. Uh, I've seen recent, recently certain companies in Africa and various African countries uh, being thrown off of the ESG indexes by these uh, investment asset managers, by these investment firms. So yeah, I don't believe it'll actually help the third world at all. And I think it's actually 
going to drive down our standard of living. And the idea is equity or fairness. But uh, the, the way that they're bringing about this so-called equity or quality of outcome is by lowering the expectations and prospects uh, of the middle class in the developed world. You're absolutely right. And I, I would just like to make two points in relation to that. Number one, I was listening to um, Klaus Schwab speak at Harvard, and this I think was in 2017. And he was explaining how it's really great how they've been working with the young generation to get them to lower their expectations, to not exactly. want or desire material wealth, but to do government service or social service. And then he talked about how the there needs to be a new pillar in our governing and societal structure that allows for social service. Exactly. And, you know, when you think of um, in 2020, the Canada 2020 held a recovery summit and they had Franz Timmermans, they had Lori Lightfoot, they had John Podesta, um, Gerald Butts, they had all these different people talking there. And they talked about weaponizing the youth and they talked about how it would be they need to change governance and they need to change how um, people respond to their society. But instead of calling it social service, they called it, for example, I think it was um, in the in the United States, you have that group where they would go around and and uh, the young people would go help developing nations or the, the right. Peace Corps. But they want a climate corps. And one of the first things Biden did was set aside money to to create such a climate core of young people who would go around and do good for the climate and basically do this social service aspect. Yes, I um, saw this happening at, at NYU when I was teaching. Uh, and that is that I s noticed this shift in the way we were preparing students. Uh, and one of, one of them was uh, this new institution of this global liberal studies program where I taught at NYU. Uh, and I was an inaugural fac faculty member of that. And the idea there was basically training students not to go into industry, not to go into for-profit production, not to go into high-paying jobs on Wall Street, but rather to go into working at NGOs. And, ah, uh, yeah. Yes, they were training these students, paying $75,000 a year to get them uh, ready and eager and willing to, to take uh, positions at NGOs, basically NGOs that were, you know, established to supposedly help people in, in various poor countries. And uh, this was kind of like an altruistic program where, you know, we're taking like the children of the upper middle class and the upper class to training them to be so servants and to invest their entire futures in um, this kind of uh, work as opposed to something else. So there was a real discouragement of anything else other than this kind of NGO or governmental work. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised because I when I was at the University of British Columbia, where I did my PhD, that was that was back in 2007, but you could still see this, that there was already a shift in Canada where, where academics were being trained to be activists. And then the students were being encouraged to join whatever sort of activist group that, that suited their preference. And exactly. I'm, so 
you can see this sort of, you can't really create this type of shift that the Great Reset wants without having a cultural shift first. Because I think there were aspects of this that they tried to do in 2008, 2009, after the first, with that financial crisis, and it didn't work. You know, countries were just like, well, we maybe will invest in green, but it really isn't working. You know, we, we need to keep our people happy. And there was a, a, a scholar named Thomas Homer Dixon from Canada who's, who made the the presentation to John Podesta and these other people at the Great Transformation Conference that what they really need to focus on is a cultural shift. Because until right. you have a cultural shift, people will resist it. And so, that's what's been happening. We've had this cultural shift. You might say we've been undergoing a, a soft cultural revolution for the last, uh, say, five or six years uh, in the United States and Canada, and I think in parts of Europe as well, uh, this kind of uh, woke revolution, which is really uh, the ideology of wokeness. I I've written about this in connection to the Great Reset. I think the woke ideology is actually serving this agenda by making the so-called privileged feel guilty and undeserving of what they have, and likewise more willing to abdicate it, and also giving it a rationale for actually taking it away if necessary. So that's what I think the function of this woke ideology is largely. While we see it taking place and being played out on Twitter in terms of uh, cancel culture and, uh, you know, competition to be the most woke and all that, it really has a larger function, which is to reduce the expectations of the masses and to make them th feel unworthy to have the so-called privileges that they do, and likewise to justify and rationalize the removal of these privileges. That's an excellent insight, and I'm so glad you, you make that point, because you're you're absolutely right. If you wanted to, if you're going to be lowering expectations and telling people they can't have that lifestyle that their parents had or something, there has to be a reason for it, right? And, exactly. And I think exactly. you're, yeah, you're absolutely right about the woke movement doing that because quite often people focus on the whole canceling side of it. When, you know, why do that? What, what is the bigger sort of implications of that? What's the bigger context in which this is happening? And, I'm really glad that you, that you make that point. Um, with respect to the developing countries not being able to meet their ESG requirements, at least how it's being defined, what I noticed last year in a discussion Mark Carney was having with some people at Royal Roads University was he said that the way that they can kind of overcome that is to basically get the developing countries to sell carbon credits to the financial institutions and the people in the West. And so then it would be this private transfer of wealth. Right. And, and so I could see that happening. I'm not really sure. Like, it, I'm thinking it'll be something like um, paying these countries not to cut down their forests or I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how, how they'll get these carbon credits, maybe because they're living a... <laughs> Uh, a less economic or energy intensive lifestyle or something. Right. But I, I found, that, yeah. Yeah. The idea is to sort of uh, uh, interfere in and uh, to preclude their development, their full development, especially where the use of oil and gas is involved. Uh, so 
uh, they were basically get paid for their poverty, if you will. Uh, it's really kind of a, a grotesque uh, idea, I think. Um, in other words, we're saying you you can't develop uh, or you're not going to get investments. If you can't develop in the way we want you to develop, you won't have any investments and you can't have the advantages of oil and gas that we've had in order to develop our economies. Uh, right. it, it's really quite a, um, uh, it's a kind of a, uh, remediation that involves step, uh, you know, the the uh, lack of uh, resources for these people. It's a, it's a kind of a um, well, I can't think of the word I'm trying to get at, but anyway, you get the idea. <laughs> well, this brings us to China because with their Belt and Road Initiative, they they basically stepped into the developing countries and said, "We'll give you whatever money you want." to develop your own stuff since the IMF and the World Bank won't do it. And then there was the pushback at COP26 and before and the negotiations leading up to that to right. try and discourage China from doing so. But, you know, because they were funding coal plants and so on and so forth. So then they China made some milk toast commitment, I suppose, in saying yes. that they would no longer finance any future coal developments in developing nations. But you know, China doesn't always keep its word in these commitments that they that they make. So one aspect that I thought was interesting was you, you call this the, the Great Reset, essentially capitalism with Chinese characteristics, being that play yes. on words where, you know, socialism with Chinese characteristics. So right. it's, it's kind of like, um, as you pointed out, capitalist development with certain monopolistic companies, just the way China has their state companies and so on. And, and there's a few that are permitted to to operate and, and thrive and so on at the direction and behest of the Communist Party. Um, right. But then they also have these authoritarian measures to control the population. So can you expand? I know you talked a, a bit about this earlier, but can you expand a little bit more about capitalism with Chinese characteristics? Yes. Uh, well, well, first, let me just talk talk real briefly about the ESG and the double standard that's being used with reference to China in particular, and then I'll talk about the conception, the concept of uh, capitalism with Chinese characteristics, if you don't mind. You know, interestingly, uh, the uh, ESG score is being adopted by the ind the index is being adopted by some Chinese companies, but. Uh, while uh, Larry Fink uh, and the uh, uh, BlackRock Inc. is investing some 30% of uh, their money into Chinese companies, uh, the, Chinese, uh, in the, the Chinese use of the index is quite uh, uh, problematic. They are basically, you know, w with these corporations under the direction of, uh, of the state, they're effectively, uh, they're effectively, I should say, they're really kind of like forging their ESG scores. Uh, they're, they're basically, there's no transparency and they're being effectively directed to report, you know, high scores and to eliminate the, the, the reporting of certain uh, environmental and social and other types of uh, uh, types of behavior that don't accord. So 
Effectively, the Chinese are exploiting the ESG while certain corporations in the, in the United States and Americas and in, in Europe as well are being starved of capital. The Chinese are exploiting this system with the help of uh, U.S. and other investors to grow their economies by it. And this includes, by the way, companies that are involved in military and surveillance technology, which is being used against the Uyghurs in order to keep them imprisoned and you know, working and, uh, as slaves, in effect. So yeah. there's a huge double standard. And you know, certainly China, if you look at it, they wouldn't pass any social, environmental, social, and governance scores uh, in you know, criteria that you could have in mind unless they're faking it. And that's what's going on. And they're doing it with the apparent knowledge of these investors who are investing in them anyway. So this is really problematic, especially if you consider the geopolitical significance of an expanding uh, Chinese militarism, which is being funded by, by American and other investors. It's just incredible. Uh, onto the, uh, the uh, capitalism with Chinese characteristics, of course, as you said, it's a play on the socialists, uh, the Chinese, uh, the CCP's own language, which they uh, used to describe the Chinese economy as they incorporated for-profit production uh, into their uh, system in order to grow the economy and effect become a world player. Uh, it was inaugurated around the 70s, uh, uh, soon after uh, Mao's demise, and was used to really grow the Chinese economy. And, you know, China, unlike the Soviet Union, effectively, you know, they wouldn't give up their socialist pretenses. So they called the system socialism with Chinese characteristics, which meant socialism with, with capitalist production. And the United States and the West in general are particularly adopting the Chinese system only in reverse, whereas the Chinese started out with socialist pol uh, a socialist political system and added capitalism later. Uh, we started with capitalism and are adding socialism later. So it's a, a reverse, and really what it comes out to is the same kind of uh, economy, that is state-approved and state-sanctioned production in the hands of effective monopolies, state-approved monopolies, and effectively no middle class or no, I should say, civ civil society. Because, you know, when the state is involved in all things economic, you politicize the whole economy. And really, uh, you, you get rid of the civil society in general, and you really uh, basically decimate what might be considered the working of uh, the middle class. There's no real middle class because you'd only have these approved giants and on the one hand and then everybody else living under actually existing socialism so i think that china is the model for the west they took a look at china and they said look they're they're doing fine look how fast they're growing their economy they're growing their economy look how well they're controlling the population uh and so on and so forth of course they forgot that you know this was all dependent upon a free western market to china for china to market to which right. is being destroyed in the process of uh, imitating china <laughs> well uh, 
that was a, an excellent description. I couldn't have summarized it better, but I, I'm thinking I really liked your description of public-private partnerships as governmentalities, where you have, as you said, private organizations wielded as state apparatuses, where corporations are deputized as major additions to governments and intergovernmental bodies. Yes. And then... Like you pointed out, they like NGOs, they have no obligation to answer to voters. And like you say, they become largely unaccountable to constituents of national governments and then our entire society. So what happens then to democracy? It's 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 actually somewhat eliminated. I mean, um, recently, uh, Terrence Corcoran of the Financial Post writes that the glowing popularity of government-run industrial policy is only one side of a bad economic coin that's circulating through Canadian and American political circles. The other movement taking shape simultaneously in corporate circles proposes to install corporations as global arbiters and enforcers of environmental, social, and governance policies. And this, uh, what he's saying here is, in effect, we're deputizing these corporations to be part of the state. And therefore, the state actually grows, it grows by virtue of these huge corporate assets that are being added to it. And then we, of course, have no say over what these corporations do while they are dictating policy and effect in connection with the state in these uh, private public partnerships, uh, which means basically a corporate state hybrid. Um, a corporate government hybrid running the country. Even leftists are really uh, screaming uh, over this because they're suggesting that, you know, it is anti-democratic and there's no question about it. It's utterly anti-democratic. We have corporations making state policies without any representation, without any say-so from the, from the uh, constituents involved. I would extend that even further and say that the environmental groups are doing the same thing. So it's it's sort of like certain stakeholders, certain right. approved stakeholders get to basically advise and create government policy. What we've seen with, for example, um, Biden's Green New Deal, which he, of course, changed the name because it was it had as the left always does, whenever there's criticism, they change the name. I mean, the Build Back Better plan was the Green New Deal tweaked. And I'm not convinced it's dead. I still think that there's going to be ways to try and sneak it into other legislation. Um, the infrastructure bill was a huge chunk uh, yes. of the Green New Deal. Um, in Canada, we and, and, and sorry, to go back to the U.S., um, with the with the Build Back Better plan and the Green New Deal, I mean, that's all written by the environmental groups and their yeah. you know, sort of so socialist uh, style activists of the of the Sunrise Movement. In Canada, what the, what the government has done since Trudeau was elected in 2016 is that they've put out government grants and contracts to help design and write policies. And then they hire, they pay the environmental groups to write it. Unbelievable. So, so it's kind of like. Why is there a bureaucracy? Why is there a civil service if they're just getting their their policy recommendations and actual drafting of legislation by the environmental groups or, you know, whichever approved corporation or stakeholder um, that the government likes? It's exactly this is total politicization of the uh, of, of the economy through the stakeholders who are approved. Uh, of social and uh, uh, policy 
environmental policy. You know, only certain people are, are considered viable stakeholders. Where does that leave the vast majority who may have different ideas? Their, their democratic input is nothing. Uh, they don't have a say in what goes on. And so, in fact, it is circumventing the democratic process. And it represents taxation without representation. Really, that's what's going on. And, you know, this also brings us, and I don't want to adjudicate the climate change debate, but, you know, there are serious questions regarding the, so, so the catastrophism that's being uh, floated about the climate change. We, we pretty much all agree that there is climate change happening and it has something to do with warming for the most part, but there is no real agreement on what it means and what it, it what effect it will have. And, you know, we keep getting told that all these weather uh, changes and so-called uh, increased hurricanes and floods and all that are all part of it. But there's no proof that there's any uh, appreciable change. In fact, there has been a uh, less there have been less hurricanes and less uh, storms, tropical storms than in the past, in the recent past. So there's no proof that this catastrophism is really what they're claiming it to be. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I think you have to effectively, in order to counter this, you do have to take on the global warming uh, debate and you have to sort of adjudicate that to some extent uh, without, you know, denying the evidence that there's some warming. The question is, what will it mean? And um, I just don't think uh, the catastrophe is what it, they're making it out to be. And if I, I've often said that if it weren't for catastrophism, the left would have nothing. Uh, because <laughs> this, this is basically, they basically use one catastrophe or another. And I've seen lists of all the catastrophes that were predicted, you know, from global freezing before this to, you know, in the, in the, in the, at the turn of the century, in the, uh, the 20th century, you know, there was a, a lot of... Uh, Huff about whether, you know, horses were going to, horsemen, we would basically drown in horse manure uh, right. because there would be so much horse manure in the cities thanks to congestion that we wouldn't be able to move. So that was mitigated, of course, by the introduction of the automobile. And uh, similarly, I think uh, you can't really predict what will happen with reference to technology and so forth. I'm not a technological utopian or anything. But I do believe that uh, this is overblown dramatically in order to intervene and to change behavior and to use it as a pretext to control the population in ways that were unthinkable before. I agree 100% with that because fear is a powerful motivator. And as we've seen with COVID-19 and, and the lockdowns and everything, if you ramp up enough fear, it makes it basically puts people into a type of mindset where it's very difficult to think rationally about something. And it, it also narrows the view so that when extraneous or contradictory information comes in, it's just discarded. And like with the climate emergency declarations and whatnot, um, you're right. Warming, what does it mean? What exactly is Earth's best temperature? Exactly. You know? <laughs> what What is the ideal? Where is this ideal temperature? And what? when have we ever had it? And right. And who gets that. to decide what it is? Who gets exactly. to decide that? So is it exactly. two degrees warmer, five degrees cooler? 
um, you know, <laughs> what what is the Earth's ideal temperature? And and as you said, what does what does it mean if it's warming a bit? If we're in an interglacial period, does that not mean that it's going to be warmer than it was during the ice age? You know exactly. And, and then there's no question that solar flares will have an impact, and that is not something we can control except through geoengineering, which I think would be very scary. But um, you know, this is just this is just the pretext here, I think. And um, as long as it's floated and being picked up by all these people and these corporations and governments, uh, we're going to have our hands full with this. Absolutely. And I think that what's interesting about the Great Reset is, you know, Klaus Schwab has been talking about this kind of structural reorganization of the globe since 1971. Right. And you have to wonder, OK, so he's been at this for 50 years. Why now? Why has he suddenly reached success now and not when the first energy crisis happened and not after the fall of the Soviet Union and not with the Kyoto Accord? You know, so what what's changed? Um Right. What's changed is, you know, COVID, uh, which, you know, is also being used, as Klaus Schwab said, Schwab and uh, Malaret said in their book, COVID-19, The Great Reset, that they said it like I, I counted the several times that they used the term opportunity. Yeah, <laughs> this was an opportunity to be seized. And what a wonderful opportunity this is to affect the Great Reset and, you know, on and on and on. I think uh, 14 mentions of the term opportunity in connection with COVID-19 and the Great Reset. They just relished this idea that this was providing a perfect al alibi, if you will, for enacting uh, these changes. Well, one of the people that they um, interviewed for both the Great Reset and for the Great Narrative is Mariana Mazzucato, who is from the University of College London. Um, she wrote a piece, I think it was in September 2020, talking about we might need climate lockdowns. You know, yes. if people aren't getting on board with what needs to be done, then we might just have to lock people down for the climate, for the sake of climate. And she is now, I don't know if you're aware of this, She's she was hired back in June 2021 to advise the, the government of British Columbia, the provincial government, on how to redesign their economy. And their, but the BC budget is supposed to come out this week or next week where they're embracing her moonshot idea of basically funneling um, government money to approved um, initiatives to take advantage as an opportunity uh, from the lockdowns and all the small businesses and whatnot that have, have gone bankrupt. And there's been massive changes in the forestry industry. They, they um, sandbag the, the forestry companies and have decided that they can't cut old growth forests. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. So, so here she is a, a, a great um, proponent of the great reset. Uh, she was featured in the Time magazine one. Um, okay, the, yeah. When they covered it and so on. And here she is advising one of the Canadian provincial governments on how to redo their economy. So is this to be one of the sort of test cases, the same way that China tests out different initiatives in different provinces to see how it goes and to, in order to tweak it for, right. for a national thing? Um, that's that's my idea is that this is she's going to be experimenting 
in BC, yeah. how how this can be rolled out to the rest of Canada and the United States. And New Zealand is is doing their thing with um, they got rid of GDP as an economic indicator. They have a well-being index. Uh, so, yes. So, I mean, this is interesting because all of these people were trained um, by the young uh, global leaders uh, organization of the great of the uh, of the World Economic Forum. Uh, the Young Global Leaders Forum, which is part of the World Economic Forum, uh, has trained most of these world leaders, Macron, uh, Trudeau, uh, the uh, president of New Zealand, uh, probably the woman you're referring to. What, what was her name again? Uh, Mariana Mazzucato? Yeah. Yeah, she's part of the the World Economic Forum and um, and, and that whole network. But See, they have the young global leaders and then they have the young global shapers. So the leaders identify people in politics or could become go into politics or maybe large corporations and whatnot who would be able right. to lead in these circumstances. So quite often they'll have key corporate people. There's people from Deloitte and Google and Facebook and all these different kinds of things. But then, then they have the young global shapers. So this is yeah. where they go into the universities and they identify students who they think will be able to help shape with the studies and the, and whatnot that, that gives support to the great reset ideas. So, I mean, they, they're very clever in not oh, just yeah. targeting the leaders, but to go through all the people who would be considered the intelligentsia or the clerisy, however, um, and and all of this, I you know, it's I think it's sold to them is that you're going to be part of this elite group, and you'll be able to tell everybody else what to do because you know right. better. You'll be an expert, and then the rest of us. <laughs> who aren't part of this sort of uh, elite group of the of the clerisy uh it's like you said it's the so the real socialism right where we'll have nothing and be happy right socialism for you and um you know control and, and uh monopolies and uh governmental control for everyone else and i think it was swab was uh boasting about how how many people, I think as the Canadian Congress, how many people from the Cana in the Canadian Congress are actually under the influence of the World Economic Forum? Uh, he said, basically, he's penetrating the cabinets, uh, I, I guess cabinets, the cabinets of various governments around the world. And he's boasting to, uh, I forget what report. It was at it was. Harvard. It was at Harvard that he was boasting that they had half half the Canadian cabinet had been a young global leader or a young global shaper. Yes, that's it. Yes, that's right. Half the Canadian cabinet. And this is probably the case for many countries around the world. Uh, but I think, you know, North America is a primary target uh, because they represent the kind of, uh, you know, impediment, if you will, uh, to this whole project. Uh, and in particular, I think because Canada has a charter of rights and the United States has a bill of rights, uh, these represent, these countries represent real, uh, kind of the last bastion of, uh, say, independence from all this. 
and therefore must be overcome. Every country, and then you, you read the quote from Schwab, but I like to, I like to do it because I put it in his accent, if you will, uh, where he says, you know, uh, let me get the quote up real quick. I want to do this for your audience here because this is, this is becoming my signature. Uh, <laughs> uh, where he says, uh, you know, yeah, every country from the United States to China must participate. And every industry from oil to, and gas to tech must be transformed. <laughs> so do you have any recommendations on how people can resist the Great Reset? Yes. I mean, uh, first of all, in terms of the ESG scoring, you can divest from ESG abiding companies if possible. Find out which, uh, which one of your funds is uh, infiltrated with ESG companies and you can pull your investments out of those companies and those funds and into other funds. Now, this is not as easy as it sounds because a lot of funds are very imbricated with various, uh, with various companies of different stocks. So it takes some time to figure out. But yeah, one of the things is divestment. And the other thing is simply, uh, well, it's not quite simply, but to build parallel structures, uh, structures that are parallel to this system, a parallel economy. And this means simply investing in and also founding, starting, uh, supporting uh, local and uh, network individuals and companies that you can uh, build relationships with to escape the general over you know larger economy to keep the free market alive as well right what about um people just kind of participating in their local government to try and take back more of of the sort of local governance because the way i see it at least how it's been played out in the uk and in canada and even to some extent in the united states is that a lot of these people have who believe in the esg and all this wokeness and and whatnot have have taken control of school boards or you know towns and villages and so on and is it useful for people to just try and get into that sort of political structure to try and divert yes. these things the political the political structure sh also sh we should try to penetrate and uh actually you know of course not vote for people that are uh for for p politicians that are uh enacting this kind of legislative favoritism uh on on behalf of these corporations and to get rid of them and 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 furthermore yes to run for offices uh, that stop these things in their tracks. Uh, a lot of this has to be enacted locally. So local government is not uh, is not insignificant. It's a rather significant approach to get involved in local government, school boards indeed, uh, because school boards will be purchasing things and they're also propagating woke ideology, which is just accelerating the uptake of all this. So, you know, that's 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 another thing you can do. And there are movements afoot, like the Greater Reset Movement that you can get involved with, and then Freedom Cells, which is another 
uh, type of organization you can get involved with and take up their recommendations if they work for you. I don't suggest hurting everybody into the same uh, type of uh, behavior because everybody's got different circumstances and they're individuals. And I don't believe in collectivism in general, but there are groups that are doing things that we can uh, take advantage of, we can learn from, and also if necessary or possible, or uh, or uh, or or attractive, you know, join in with. Right. So the greater reset, the greater reset movement, and the freedom cell movement are two that I know of. Um. What about education? What can people do to sort of combat the the insidiousness of the the woke ideology that has permeated the basic school systems and universities? What what recommendations do you have for that? Uh, yeah, I think well, one of the things I would recommend first of all is, this, if possible, just withdrawing from public education altogether, uh, and then perhaps you know if you can't. If you can't get your tax money back, uh, then suing them for for the for your for your taxes because they're supporting a particular ideology that is uh, now become policy, and it's their official ideology, and it's a religion. So if it can be noted to be a religion, at least in the U.S., we have separation of church and state. So state organs like schools should not be pop propagating particular religions. And I think wokeness can be easily uh, assimilated to and uh, reckoned as a religion. Uh, so that's another thing I would do. Also, there are legal remedies in suing, uh, suing companies that are uh, that are enacting such policies through uh, their boards and and through various means. You know, uh, there's legal remedies that can be taken as well. And I would suggest. All of these things, we have to have a multi-pronged approach because we're being buffeted by a multi-pronged uh, phenomenon. That's an excellent point, and I think that's a, a good place to end the conversation because, as you say, it's it's holistic. It's it's changing an entire system, and therefore, we also need to take a full system approach in defense. Yes, absolutely. So thank you very much, uh, Michael, for your time. And uh, I really appreciate having our conversation today. Thank you very much for having me, Tammy. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.